listening to the sermon podcast from Real Life Moscow Campus, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. Hi, family. How are you? Glad you're here with us this morning, and um, we're uh, we're going to talk about something that's <clears throat> pretty important. Uh, I have I have a story to tell to to introduce this one. This this had to have been 11 years ago because I think. My son Caleb, who's 20 now, he was nine at the time, and we had just come down here and kind of gotten the church rolling, and um, uh, we were driving down Steiner Avenue by Bearable Dentistry, Uh, like it's seared in my head, and he looks at me out of the blue and he says, Dad, are we ever going to go plant any other churches? And I was like, I said, buddy, I hope not. Because planting a church is hard. Like, it's dumb. Who would want to do that? You know, you got, you got a secure job. Let's start over and do from nothing. That could fail, you know. It's really a bad idea. And he said, and he said Dad, but if we don't go plant other churches, how is everybody else going to know? And it, it really marked me. Like, I was like, whoa, um, they're catching things that I didn't realize they were catching. Does that make sense? Like my kids are picking up on things that I didn't realize they were picking up on. And so there was a couple of things that I made a decision about that day that uh, have stuck with me. The first one is um, my kids are watching me. And so I want to be real intentional about what they're seeing. Because whether or not I walk in faith or not, whether or not I live one way and teach another way, like they see it. They're going to see it and they're going to pick up on it. That's the first thing. The second thing is when I go in the ground and I will one day, um, that's a, I'm, I'm, I'm a walk out of that grave too, but different. Um, I'm going to have a glorified body, which I'm really looking forward to. Um, because this flesh bag is not so glorified. Anyways, uh, so uh, when I go in the ground, I want my kids to stand over my grave and say, that guy left a legacy of risking everything for his faith. And that, that's something that's really important to me, that, that my kids are able to say, not because I demanded it, but because they saw it, that their dad was a guy who lives what he, what he taught. And that's super important to me. So that raises this question um, for me, like when you read the Bible, what kind of person does God use? And, and what tandem to that, what, what does it mean to be a person of faith? Like what does that look like? And uh, these kind of questions are um, really important to me. And so this is kind of what we're going to try to tackle today. So there's this tradition in scripture where God calls someone named twice, Jacob, Jacob, Moses, Moses. And I think as readers, we don't really stop and go, I wonder if anything more could be there. Because there is actually, Hebraically, there's a lot going on right there. Hebraically, when a name is said twice, that there's a connotation of this certain intimacy and closeness in that relationship between that person and God. But there's three other things that are going on. There's going to be a change in mission for that, for that person. There's going to be a change in the relationship with God. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
And there's going to be a change in their identity going forward. When someone's name is called twice, there's always a call for action and there's always a call for change. So what, what we want to do this morning is just walk you through this process of looking at these in the scripture. There's seven of them. Seven times God, uh, the person's name is called twice in scripture. And um, four times in the Old Testament, three times in the New Testament. The four times in the Old Testament, it's always God who does it. The three times in the New Testament, it's Jesus who does it. And so we want to take a look at these and just observe, like, what can we learn? Um, what can we learn about this calling of their name twice? And how does that tie into um, the, the idea of what it looks like to be a kind of person that God uses. So the first one is Abraham. And Abraham, if you'll remember, uh, his name was Abram, and God changed his name to Abraham, which means father, which is awesome because he didn't have any kids yet, and God calls him father. Um, which I love that God gives him his identity before it's fulfilled. Like, that's important for us. We're going to talk about that in a couple of weeks um, when we talk about identity. But... Um, it's significant that he does that. And so God leads him out to this land. And he finally, after all these years, he has a kid. And he's finally the kid of the promise. And then God comes to him and says, Abraham, I want you to go uh, lay your son on the altar and sacrifice him to me. And Abraham does it. Like he's, it's, it seems in the story like he's not even surprised that this would happen, which raises all kinds of questions. Why would God ask this? Um, for, and why, doesn't, why isn't Abraham shocked? right? But um, he takes his son up the mountain, lays him on the altar, and he raises the knife. And that's where we're going to pick up the story here in Genesis 22. It says, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now, I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went to look at the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. And it is, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Like the thing that blows Abraham away in this whole thing isn't that he had to sacrifice his son. It's that his God provided. That's the part that he's like, oh my word, we... This God provides. This God doesn't demand and take. This is a God who provides so much so that he gives God a new name here that we take for granted. But in his world, that was something that was revolutionary to the first hearers of that name. The next person we want to talk about is Jacob. And I want to give you a little context of what's going on here. Jacob has just found out that his favorite child, and of course we're not supposed to have favorite children, but we know he does. His favorite child who he thought was dead for years and years and years is alive. And not only alive, but he's second in command of Egypt. That would have been hard to take in. And Pharaoh has just sent this entourage to get Jacob, his entire, <clears throat> his entire family, and bring them all the way back to Egypt during a famine so that they can live a comfortable life. Pretty amazing. So let's go ahead and read Genesis 46, 1 through 4. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba, which is not very far from where he started, and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. 
And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Now, when God tells someone to go, he doesn't always tell them what's going to happen, but sometimes he does. And I love that he calmed Jacob's fears. Of course, Jacob was going to be nervous, not really believing that this all could be true. And so God reassures him and says, it's going to be okay. I'm going to be with you. Your son's going to be there too till the end of your ages. That's pretty amazing. So the third one is Moses. And if you remember Moses' story, he was born at a time when it wasn't really safe to be a Hebrew baby boy. And so through a really cool series of events, he winds up being raised in Pharaoh's palace. And he has this tension inside of him of, is he Egyptian? Is he Israelite? It's like he doesn't know. And he struggles with this through a lot of his adult life. And so one day he's out. He sees an Egyptian slave driver beating a Hebrew slave. And so he kills the slave driver and buries him and thinks he gets away with it. And so then the next day he sees two Hebrews fighting. And they say, you're going to kill us like you killed the Egyptian. It scares him. And so he runs away. And he goes to Midian, and he's a shepherd for 40 years. And that's where we're going to pick up the story, Moses is a shepherd in Midian. And it says, now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet was not consumed. And Moses said... I will turn aside to see this great sight why the bush is not burned. Which the funny thing about that is he doesn't like, how in the world did the bush get on fire? Like that's not the part that spooks him. It's that it's on fire and not being consumed. So that ought to be an interesting another sermon for another day. Uh, When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And now, here's the mission. Here's the new mission for Moses. And then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and bring them out of, up to a land that... <coughs> to a a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and the Vegemites. Now, the Vegemites lived in a land down under. Um, That's where they were, right? And, And here's the important part about that. If you're like, oh my goodness, that's a terrible thing. You better run, you better take cover, all right? Because Vegemites will get you. That's funny. Come on, that's funny. Um, And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and see, I have also seen the oppression on which, uh, with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Next, we want to talk about Samuel. Here's a little backstory to Samuel. His parents were Elkanah and Hannah. Elkanah had two wives. One wife could have babies. Hannah could not have babies. for years and years they tried. And in their culture, you got to understand, if you're barren, the whole community looks at you as if you you did something wrong. 
because if you were sinless, then of course God or the gods would give you a baby. So if you're barren, you did something wrong. So there was a lot that came with being barren besides just the grief of not having a child. So Hannah goes up to the temple and she pleads with the Lord, please, if you will just give me a baby, I will give him back to you and he will serve you all the days of his life. And so God does it. He gives her a baby. And when the child is uh, the age to be weaned, she takes him on up to the temple and she essentially gives him to the temple. And so the priests basically raise him. He lives there at the temple. Now, this is a little bit of a long passage, but I, I think it's highly humorous. Let me just set this up for you. Eli's the high priest and he's old. Now, those of us who are getting older, we realize sometimes it's hard to fall asleep and it's super hard to fall back asleep when you've been woken up. So keep that in mind as the story's going on. So 1 Samuel 3, 1 through 10. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you've called me. But he said, I did not call. Lay down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called again. Samuel. And Samuel arose and he went to Eli and said, here I am for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son. Lie down again. Like you can hear the tone of voice as you're reading it. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time and he arose and went to Eli. And he said, here I am for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore, Eli said to Samuel, go lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place, and the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak, for your servant hears. So the next one is Martha, and she's a bit of an enigma in this whole process because we don't really see going forward what her new mission becomes, but we do certainly see an invitation to a deeper intimacy with God here. Um, This is in Luke chapter 10. It says, now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, which is not a problem I have ever had. Distracted with much serving. I'm distracted with sit on my couch too much. That's what I get distracted by. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which shall not be taken away from her. Simon Peter, what's going on leading up to this passage is that it's Passover, and Jesus and the disciples are having their Seder meal, and they've just been talking about who's the greatest in the kingdom, 
And pretty soon, they're going to go over to the Mount of Olives. Jesus is going to pray. He's going to ask his guys to stay awake, which they don't because they have full bellies. And he's going to get arrested. So in Luke 22, 31, Jesus is addressing Simon Peter. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now Jesus, pardon me, Peter had just claimed right after this, I would never betray you. And I have to believe that God brought these words of Jesus to mind later on after he betrayed him to remind him, you know what, I I still have purpose. Jesus knew what I was going to do and he still believed in me. And I, I bet those words gave him courage that he still had a mission to do. And that's probably what gave him strength to go on. I just think that's really neat. Now, the last one's probably the most famous one. This is Saul, who becomes Paul, and his writes over half the New Testament. And so he's a major player in our, in our faith today. But he was a Christian killer. He tried to seek out and murder Jesus' followers because he felt like they were an interruption to the way, to, to what he believed. And so in Acts chapter 9, it says this, but Saul still breathing murderous threats against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. That's 350 miles away. I don't want to walk 350 miles ever. He wanted to walk 350 miles just to kill Christians. Like, that's how serious he was about this. And I feel like God looks at him and goes, man, I like that guy's chutzpah. If I could ever get a hold of his heart, that'd be a useful guy. I got an idea. So that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now that he went on, now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling on the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord now, we don't know what the voice inflection is there. We don't, who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? Like, my dad was a preacher, and so he always used to stop right there when he preached in this passage, and he did it a lot, a lot. Um, and, and he would say, who are you, Lord? Because my dad's voice is like that, right? Who are you, Lord? And he, had, <laughs> he had an old lady one time tell him that he was smooth like Southern Comfort. And I was like... You fry the mouth and burn all the way down? Is that, you're smooth like Southern Korea? I don't get it, I don't get it. Anyway, but that's, so who are you, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And Paul gets a whole new mission in life because his name gets called twice. So what is it about this particular group of people I mean, if you look at their life, you got a bunch of liars, a bunch of deceivers, some people who committed adultery. Like, what's going on there? What's going on is that their heart has a posture of obedience. Whatever you want, God, I'm in. And that says something. It seems to trump all that other stuff. So we're just going to run through these 
passages real quick as evidence. The first one, Genesis 22, 11. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. Genesis 46, 2. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. In Exodus 3, 4. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. There's a couple more that we threw in there, not because they fall into the name being called twice, <clears throat> but because their posture of their heart seems to show that they were all in as well. And that's Isaiah the prophet and Ananias, who helped Saul gain his sight back on the road to Damascus. So the first one, Isaiah. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. And in Acts 9.10, now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. Kelly and I need to share with you this morning, and the reason why we're going through all this is that we believe that we have heard our name called, and we feel compelled to say, here I am. And because of that, June the 9th will be our last Sunday as pastors of Real Life on the Palouse. We are obligated to follow what we firmly believe is the Lord's calling of our name. So we wanted to share this story with you so that you guys can understand we have not gone into this lightly. And for those of you who don't know, we planted a church prior to this and we were called out of that one to come here to this area. And so while we weren't completely surprised because we've been there before. We don't want to go. This is very hard. So we want to share the story of how this all came to be. And hopefully I can get through most of this. May of 2018, Aaron was approached by a church in Seattle and asked if he might consider, in the fall of 2019, stepping in to take the lead pastor position because their pastor was going to be retiring. <clears throat> this seemed like a great opportunity for Aaron. It was going to be very hard for me. I was going to have to quit my job, and I, I didn't feel done, to be honest. I was going to have to leave my friends, my home group, my church family, and I was going to have to leave my three big kids because they're 18, 20, and 22, and they have a life here. But we prayed because those opportunities have happened throughout our ministry. And we pray every time, because we don't know. Could it be the Lord getting, getting us ready to go? We prayed, and pretty soon after, it was evident that it was a no, and I was very relieved. <clears throat> Fast forward seven months to just this past December. December 12th, and we're sitting in our kitchen, and we start to talk about what if God has something else for us, which felt like an odd thing to talk about. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm super struggling today. In light of where the church was, things were and are great and exciting, and Aaron will talk more about that later. So Aaron said, do you think we should pray? And I said, okay. And then I had a private conversation with the Lord. You better make this obvious. You know how much is at stake. 
The next morning, Aaron gets an email from the Seattle church who we had not talked to in seven months. Hey, I know you guys aren't interested, but do you have anybody on your radar who we could consider for the lead pastor position? Aaron forwards me the email and says, should we pray? And I'll be honest, I said, crap. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, 12 hours earlier, I said, Lord, be obvious. We have to pray. <clears throat> so we started praying, and, and I personally asked God for three things. I asked him, if wherever we go next, if there could be a place for me in ministry, I didn't feel done. And could we not have to go alone? Could someone else join us? And lastly, could maybe one or more of our big kids want to move with us? So we prayed all of December, and we prayed all of January, and we prayed all of February. And like he does, the enemy tried to get in there and do some really nasty things to get us really off track of focusing on the Lord and trying to hear his voice solely so we knew what to do because this was hard. But it also was a gift because it made us press into God even more. At the end of February, as we're waiting to hear from the Seattle church, and we haven't heard anything yet because they're collecting other resumes, we get a call out of the blue from a guy we've had a connection with for over 20 years. And he's head of the search committee at a church in the Denver area. And he says, hey, Aaron, um, our church has really been through the ringer the last nine years. I mean the ringer. And the people that are left are tired and weary but they're hopeful for more. And we have tried small groups and it just isn't working. We don't know what to do. And we just need a guy who could come in, help us and lead us on to the next thing God might have for us. And we think you might be just that guy. So we prayed and we processed with our kids, with our close friends. And some interesting things started to happen for me This church assured us there was a place for me. We had some friends who said, hey, we want to go with you. They're a family of six. They're going to uproot and go with us. And two out of three of my children said, mom, we'll move down that way eventually. And it started to become clear. And as my big kids prayed, Denver's 16 hours away. My big kids said, mom, this feels right, this feels right. I think you're supposed to do this. So to have your kids say that knowing you're moving farther away, that said a lot to us. And so I wanna just say from my heart, we don't go into this lightly. The reality is we are moving away from our kids for I don't know how long, and I can't think too much about that because that's way too hard. Kids are supposed to leave you. You don't move away from your kids. And we love you guys. We love our home group. Some of you we've gotten to know all 11 years, and we've been a part of your struggles and a part of your victories, and you've been a part of ours, and you've worshiped for us, our marriage, and our kids. Some of you 
we've just started getting to know, and we are so thankful that our paths got to cross even for this short time. So I need you to know we do not go into this lightly. And we want you to know how much we love you guys and how much we love this church. We're not leaving because anything is wrong. And I want to I be clear about this because the rumor mill flies and I hate that it does this. It did it when, it, this happened when we left Post Falls 2. Everybody was like, oh, there must be something wrong behind the scenes and they're not. And then everybody gets all insecure. So just straight up, there's nothing wrong. We feel the Lord's leading us. That's it. I've heard the rumors already starting to fly around here. Like, oh, so they asked you to step down. I heard that they asked you to step down. Nope. No, they didn't. They didn't. And the tr- I don't know, maybe I sh- shouldn't, well, I won't say it. Uh, they didn't. They didn't. They didn't do that. Um, do you see how much growth you've allowed me to have over the last 11 years? Like 11 years ago, I'd have just said that. <laughs> there's nothing wrong. There's no drama. There's not. And so I just want to ask you up front, as we go through this process, and we're not dead yet. We're not leaving. Um, June, Right? When, as we go through this process, as you hear the rumors fly, um, just stop it because it's gossip and it's destructive. We've said all along that what's going to break this church down is not theological craziness. It's if we can't figure out how to get along with one another. That's what's going to happen. It, everything here is better than it's ever been. Our numbers are higher than they've ever been, ever. Um, our attendance is higher than it's ever been. We have more home groups and we have more people in home groups than we've ever had. Um, we had a record number of baptisms last year and we're on pace to break that already this year. And I got to tell you a story about that. So a couple of weeks ago, we had Thursday night service where we had 16 baptisms, right? You saw the video last week. Here's the thing. I was sitting right over here where Rod's sitting in the front row and I'm watching um, these baptisms and it hits me. I have never had a conversation with any of these people, not one. Which on the one hand is a bummer, right? That's like, man, gosh. But what that is, is that's the church doing its job. I shouldn't have to do that. You know what I mean? Like that's the church being the church. And so because of that, your friends and family members are coming to know Jesus. That's not, and and it was like God came and sat down next to me and um, he said, See, it's, things here are going to be just fine. Which was good. It was good for me to know that. Um, disciples are still being made in our church. More disciples and at a faster rate than we've ever seen. And we're hearing the stories of your guys' faithfulness. Like it's such a blessing that you've been able to allow us to be a part of your stories that we've been able to see God do and at things in your life and watch you be faithful in that for the last 11 years. We're so grateful for that. When we planted this church, we had three dreams, we had three hopes for it. Number one, we wanted to build a church that gave disillusioned church people a hope that God is still working and he still has plans for us. That was something that was really important to me. Number two, to show the community that Jesus followers can make a real positive difference in the world. And number three, that there's a God that is real and loves us more than we ever could possibly imagine. And we've done that. 
We, we did it. And now God is leading Kelly and I to step into a new adventure in reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. And we will continue to do that. I'd love to do it with you, so you're welcome to come with us to, to Denver. But we will do it together just in different locations from now until Jesus returns. And, and I love taking this chance to move into communion because communion is this amazing picture where we, we get a picture of God, what God expects when, when, when we're going to follow him, we're going to say we're Jesus followers. What does that mean? Communion's the answer. It means we lay down our lives and we follow him regardless of the cost. So we're going to take communion together now. Um, we take communion every week, and uh, we have an open table. And anybody who's willing to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus with us is invited to take communion. But we want you to hold the elements till the end, and we'll take them together. Okay? While they're passing that out, um, we're going to work through some implications for this week. Not questions for home group, just implications, things that we hope that you land with. Number one, your children need to see you live by faith more than they need to see you play it safe in your faith for their sake. And I've seen a lot of parents that have said they can't follow where the Lord's leading them because it would put their children at risk. Your children are not better off if they don't see you live by faith. They're not better off if you play it safe. Faith is risky business, and we're called to it. Number two, God can still do great things in and through people who are willing to follow him no matter the cost. And again, I love the picture of communion as a reminder of that. Here's what it looks like. Lay your life down. It's not your life anymore. It's his to do with as he sees fit. Number three, a person that God uses to accomplish his purpose more and more is always willing to say, here I am. And for every one of the examples that we looked at in scripture, radical changes happened in their life. Radical shifts that I guarantee you that before that conversation with God, they didn't have a, hey, let's do that. That's a great idea. Like Moses wasn't like, oh, I'll just walk into Pharaoh, tell him to let the people go. Wasn't on his radar. Certainly Paul was not like, you know what I'll do? I'll plant churches. It was not on his radar, but they were faithful. And because of it, God did great things in and around them. We want to be people who say, here I am. And so our last um, implication, and it's not written in your notes, is this. Kelly and my legacy will always be an invitation to follow God with all of your heart with all of your soul, with all of your strength, to hold nothing back, right? Um, when my kids kick me into their grave, they're gonna roll me into a big hole and cover me up. And I, I am gonna get a glorified body. Um, I want my kids to say about me, that's a guy who walked out what he said. 
I think we admire people of conviction. We have a hard time actually being people of conviction. Kelly and I really want to be people of conviction, people who make decisions by our convictions, not by our fears, not by the world around us, not by culture, not by anything else. So our legacy is always going to be an invitation to trust God and follow him. And I love communion on the heels of that. Because for us, like Jesus wasn't playing when he said, um, I'm going to lay my life down for you. He did it. And so that's our model. That's our model. This bread represents that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. So whenever you eat this bread, do it in remembrance of me. And then he took a cup and he said, this cup, it's a new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. So whenever you drink this cup, do it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Lord, uh, what lays before all of us is this big, new, grand adventure of following you. And I pray, God, that you would give us the courage to be honest about uh, what you're calling us to do and to walk through it. Lord, we love you and we trust you and we say we're going to follow you. Um, give us the heart to actually do it. God, I, I just want to pray a special prayer that as we, Kelly and I, transition out, protect this body. Give them your favor in the community. And in the name of Jesus, I want to declare that in this group of people, Satan has no business here. We are yours and yours alone. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life on the Palouse. You can find out more about us by visiting us online at liferotp.com and connecting with us on Facebook and Instagram. Until next time, have a great week.